Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Film Haven Reviews. I am your host Sawyer as always, and today we are going to be continuing our theme of World War I movies with the Stanley Kubrick classic Paths of Glory from 1957. Um, a lot of differences between this movie and the last movie I reviewed, which is All Quiet on the Western Front, mainly due to the subject matter and this the style of the narrative, whereas... All Quiet on the Western Front is following one character through the horrors of war, highlighting the conditions of that war. This movie is more of a scenario, a specific snapshot into a philosophical quandary or maybe a meditation, a moral meditation on the specific issues of the power dynamics between the ruling class and the men who were forced to fight for them. So... There was a little bit of that in the new in the remake of uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, there was a general who, I think that was more of like the old world way of doing war versus the new world way. I think that was where that was coming from. Still honor based, but in this movie, in Paths of Glory, it's more of aristocracy and the hubris of power corrupting and desensitizing the humanity of the leaders of a war that had mil literally millions of men clashing together in a brutal onslaught of mayhem. It is no secret um, in our current day, and maybe even at the, at the time, that World War I was a, uh, to put it simply, a rich man's war fought by the poor. And to put it more complicated, it was these royal aristocrats aristocratic families who had um, squabbles with each other and whereas in the last few hundred years you could fight these squabbles with comparatively smaller military engagements some br definitely brutal in in their nature and places but considering the scale of world war one it was um, a hard lesson to learn and a lesson learned by the foot soldiers that technology had changed. And because of that, you have these massive uh, infantry charges that you would be pretty normal in, in a war in the 1800s or the 1700s. Now, in the face of machine guns, artillery, gas, all these new tanks, all these new ways of war, those tactics become a lot more futile to just throw bodies at something and a lot more costly. And what we also have is a military hierarchy that is still acting like it is the 17 or 1800s. And that kind of grading and that philosophical difference or lack of adaptation is what causes, I think, the core conflict within Paths of Glory. I also think that the entitlement of the upper class even within the military ranks also plays a huge part in this and kind of one feeds into the other the lack of adaptation based on this generational honor system that was that's been created within the military hierarchy and also the air of superiority that comes with that the higher in the military you are the more likely you're from the aristocracy and so there's like an entitlement that's wrapped up with the honor and then the result of that is a complete lack of regard for the men under your command. And that plays out 
very obviously in the events of the movie. So getting into the events of the film, we start with a general who has orders from high command to take what they call the Ant Hill, which is a fortified position um, on the German lines. He is a French general, and he is supposed to, against all odds, take this Ant Hill no matter what. And he is even aware, as he says in the first conversation with the general from high command, that this is an impossible task, basically, or that he couldn't possibly do it. But then the general mentions to him that if he was to carry out his orders like a good general should, then he might just get another star on his collar. And right away, we can see that this character is going to represent that detached upper echelon of military um, personnel that sees the men as pawns in the game and the war games like they aren't real people and there are many quotes within this movie that explicitly state as much i'm not just kind of deriving that out of the minutia of the movie it's it's very obvious that this character especially by the end does not care about the lives of his men and instead has this kind of faulty ideal of what military honor should be and you know duty a soldier must do what they're asked to do and have no questions and if they are asked to do something impossible then they just do it and and gladly sacrifice their lives in order to fulfill that duty but as it's shown throughout the movie you see that this is actually a thin veil that is being used to manipulate the system for his own power gain. So the general orders Kirk Douglas's character, Colonel Dax, to carry out this impossible mission. And Dax serves as the representative of the common soldier. He is a colonel, but he actually cares about his men, and his uh, philosophy is a lot more uh, populari or egalitarian. And so those... It's those philosophical ideas that are going to clash within the movie. But Colonel Dax still has a duty to his men and a duty that he feels to his general. And so despite protesting, he does carry out the attack. But of course, without proper reinforcements, without proper um, backup, the attack on Ant Hill is a complete failure and the men are forced to retreat. And this is where the crux of the conflict comes from because the general doesn't want to see that failure on his record of not being able to take it, even though at some point he knew that this was not going to go well. But at least his men would should die honorably going forward, the sight of them retreating. So we have this old honor-bound thinking from the 1700s that is rubbing up against this new modern way of fighting which takes those tactics and literally obliterates them at the cost of human lives and then you've got his own personal ambition that is being tested and his personality is so repressed and so power hungry that his manhood his honor cannot be challenged and in the face of that he takes his anger out on the troops that he sent to die in the first place, which is horrible. But it's also indicative of what was happening on the larger scale at the war at the time. 
which I think is one of the more genius things that this movie does, is that it takes this singular moment that is fictional but can be blown up to the entire theater of war on the Western Front and to the war at large. What happens after that point in the movie, I'm going to hold off on. I know the movie's from 1957, but it's really an experience to watch, and so I don't want to reveal too much. That's more of the setup. The second half of the movie is where the real moral quandaries and the theme, the messaging really comes through, but I think I've set those themes up enough already, so I don't really need to talk too much more about the rest of the film as far as uh, messaging goes and the the themes of them. But uh, let's get into some of the technical stuff before I end this out. So um, it was filmed in black and white, which I think was a really smart idea. There may even be a thematic reason for that, considering that we have two opposing viewpoints clashing together here. This black and white military um, binary thing of you either follow orders or you don't. And then you've got the uh, Colonel Dax, Kirk Douglas's character, who is kind of representing the gray areas. And within, of course, monochrome um, filmmaking, you get to see all three of those things, these stark light dynamics of dark and light, and then you also see the gray. Now, I may be extrapolating maybe too much on that, but I think there was a reason that Kubrick decided to go black and white, and if I was to try to find one, I think that would be satisfactory to me, personally. Um, another thing is the the set design is incredible, of course. Um, it's a very famous scene, that charge on Ant Hill. Um, I remember seeing it in film school, and it still took me this long to watch the movie, but I remember being very wowed by it, and just the the sheer amount of people, like extras that are on this field, I mean, to, to think about what they needed to do in order to create that set for the charge for No Man's Land is uh, mind-blowing, and the juxtaposition between the No Man's Land and the trenches and then just a you know a mile or two behind that you have this giant um, French villa that is very ostentatious and where the second half of the movie takes place. I think that was uh, I mean it's very just true to how the nature of the war was, but it's also thematically it works as well to see the difference between the squalid conditions of the men in the trenches and then the luxurious grandeur of these mansions that the generals are living in um it just further proves that that divide between the upper echelon and the common soldier and then one of the things i think i love the most about the movie and this might seem silly at first is the fact that it's only 88 minutes long it's not a very long movie and at the time that I'm recording this, the Oscars just happened, um, and I'm very happy about All Quiet on the Western Front getting their uh, winners. I think it was very well-deserved, um, but all those movies that were Best Picture nominated, at least, besides Women Talking, I think all of them were at least two and a half hours long, and that is, it's fine, but it's also like, holy, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. So it's really refreshing to see a movie like this that was done in 88 minutes and didn't need to be any longer. I think it was a perfect time. It was concise is the best word to use. There was no fat. Everything that happened was important. There was nothing in each scene was crucial and it all served the purpose of the theme. Nothing was throwaway. There were no subplots that didn't need to be there. The movie was short but it was impactful and I think it 
it didn't distract with anything else other than what it was trying to do and what it was trying to convey. And that is a testament to the editing and the screenwriting and the vision of Stanley Kubrick, honestly, because he is famously someone who later makes some very long movies and overshoots those movies by a lot. So to see him make something so concise... I don't know how much raw tape he found, but what ended up on the editing floor and what came out was a very concise film that knew exactly what it wanted to be and what it wanted to convey, and it did that well. So I've got to, I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10, same as All Quiet on the Western Front, because those movies, I feel like they kind of offer the same amount of quality and also in their different ways are equally as important to the general public to explore the concepts that were very upfront and pressing at the time of World War I, but are easily applicable to today in different ways. Okay, so that's it for Paths of Glory. Uh, next week, we're going to watch a little bit of a different film called See You Up There. I think it's a French film. Um, it came out in 2017, and it is more based around post-World War I, uh, a story that starts in the trenches and then continues on afterwards. I think it's going to be a little bit of a departure from the theme slightly, but I think if we're looking at boots on the ground, then we're looking at, with Paths of Glory, the aristocracy, more of a moral quandary within the movie, and then this third movie is kind of the post-war implications as well so i think it kind of rounds out the theme really well and i've never seen it before so it looks like it could be pretty fun but i will see you guys next week and i hope you have a good day all right bye